This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Do you think that young progressives in the United States will ultimately rally behind Joe Biden in November, or has he seriously damaged his standing? Look, I I think we will see what happens in November because the choice is pretty clear. Running against Donald Trump, who I suspect will be the Republican candidate is one of the most dangerous political figures in modern American history. So I think people will end up rallying around Biden. But there is no question, it is very hard for young people, I think for most Americans, to be excited about what is going on right now. President has got to change course. He has been very clear. He has expressed his concern about, quote unquote, indiscriminate bombing. He has asked Netanyahu over and over again to change course. Netanyahu just yesterday said, no, we're going to continue doing what we are doing, unacceptable. You cannot give billions of dollars to a country that ignores your wishes, violates international law. So I would hope that the president follows through on his concerns and says to Netanyahu, this is unacceptable. You're not getting a nickel more from the United States unless you radically change course. We're not going to see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children starve to death. Look, I have my disagreements with Bernie Sanders when it comes to Israel. He somehow still is not calling for a ceasefire, which is so disappointing to me because he actually recognizes the severity of the humanitarian crisis created in Gaza specifically because of Israel's war crimes. So it's mind boggling to me that he can't say the word ceasefire. But despite that, he still is using his power in meaningful ways. And I think that he deserves credit for that. For example, he's forcing a vote on a resolution that will force the State Department to report on Israel's human rights abuses. And if they fail to comply and don't release said report within 30 days, then aid to Israel is automatically cut off. Now, that's not going to pass, but I think that the effort overall is still good. It's important. Nonetheless, Bernie's overall position on Israel, to me, just seems completely incoherent because he's only calling for a humanitarian pause, which makes no sense because the humanitarian disaster that he's describing continues to unfold after there already was a humanitarian pause. So another one isn't going to make a difference. If you genuinely want the violence to stop permanently, you would call for a ceasefire, and he hasn't done that. But two things can be true at once. He's bold enough to attempt to cut off aid to Israel, that matters, but he's not bold enough to address the root cause of the humanitarian crisis that he's against. But when it comes to what he says about Biden, he is absolutely right, even if he's using kid gloves to handle the situation. Biden is continuing to express concerns about Israel, but he's not making actual demands. He's not doing what he needs to do to stop the genocide. And in the absence of actual demands and threats to cut off aid, nothing is going to change. But don't take my word for it. Let's actually listen to what a Likud party member of the Knesset said on Israeli television. Now, this clip is from December 8th, and uh, it recently gained traction. So it's a little bit old, but it's still true as of today. 
לא תמיד מסכימים על הכל. היו מחלוקות מההתחלה, דרך אגב. הם לא הסכימו לתימון קרקעי, נכנסנו קרקעית. הם לא הסכימו לבית חולים שיפא, התעלמנו מהבקשה שלהם. כן. הם רצו הפוגה בלי חטופים, לא הסכמנו להם. מה שדווח בהתחלת המהדורה, ולשמחתי תוקן, אין אולטימטום אמריקאי. אין דדליין של ארה״ב. אנחנו עובדים, צריכים להמשיך להכות בחמאס, וגם אם זה יבוא למקום של עימות mm-hmm. עם ארה״ב, צריך להמשיך עד הסוף. therein lies the problem. We've all been saying it. Israel is admitting it now. They're not facing pressure from Biden. Therefore, you know, these disagreements don't really amount to much. Now, I've shared this article before, but this particular paragraph is worth repeating. So in an op-ed for the nation, Trita Parsi explains, in 1982, President Ronald Reagan was disgusted by Israeli bombardment of Lebanon. He stopped the transfer of cluster munitions to Israel and told Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin in a phone call that this is a holocaust. Reagan demanded that Israel withdraw its troops from Lebanon. Begin caved. 20 minutes after their phone call, Begin ordered a halt on attacks. So the Reagan administration made a demand and they cut off weapons to Israel. And guess what? They were forced to acquiesce. So the question is, why won't Biden do the same? He's not powerless. So he's making a choice. The Biden administration's decision to allow this to continue is a choice. He is choosing to be a willing participant in the ethnic cleansing and genocide of the people of Gaza. And that choice may cost him the election. Because as Bernie Sanders correctly put it, young voters aren't excited to rally around a candidate responsible for the deaths of 24,000 civilians, including 10,000 children. And the polls currently reflect that. The Hill reports in an ABC News Ipsos poll conducted January 4th through 8th, only 33% of those surveyed said they approved of Biden, a drop from the previous poll in September of 2023, when 37% approved of his performance. Biden's disapproval rating is 58%, up from 56% in September. ABC News said it's the lowest approval rating since former President George W. Bush from 2006 to 2008. Biden, who is running for re-election, has a lower approval rating than former President Trump, who is leading the GOP nominee for president. Disastrous. Disastrous. And this is one of many polls indicating Biden is losing support. In other words, there's an iceberg dead ahead and the Biden administration is sailing right into it at full speed, not even trying to steer away from it. And this isn't happening because the demographics who voted for Biden in 2020 have suddenly become red-pilled and they're all Trump supporters. It is because they are disillusioned with Biden And they plan to forego voting altogether, which is a huge problem, in particular when it comes to young people. Teen Vogue's Fortessa Latifi explains, after a record-breaking youth turnout in 2020 helped decide the election for President Joe Biden, a recent poll released by Harvard Kennedy School shows that young Americans seem less likely to vote in 2024 than they were in 2020. According to the poll, at this point in the 2020 election cycle, 57% of Americans between ages 18 and 29 were planning to vote. That number has since declined to 49%, though Gen Z voters prefer President Biden over his likely challenger, former President Donald Trump, only 35% of this demographic approves of Biden's performance as president. Now, let's just pause right there and address the implications of this if it's not already obvious to everyone. If this stands, if these numbers don't change and we actually see an 8% decrease in youth turnout and not an increase from 2020, Biden loses this election. I'll repeat that. Biden loses and Donald Trump 
with Project 2025 in mind and with him promising to be a dictator, but only for a day, will win this election. Democracy as we know it will be over. So this cannot stand. And you can try to blame young people. You can say it's irrational for them to hand the election to Trump. But ultimately, many of them are going to stay home. So Biden is the one who has to make the change. The onus is on him. And it's not like he doesn't have enough time to change course. Teen Vogue actually spoke to young voters. And I think that these anecdotes are really important, but they're not representative of all of Gen Z and millennials. But here's what they're saying nonetheless. Elias, who is a Palestinian American, has a laundry list of issues with the current administration that have pushed him to this point of not voting, including sales of new oil and gas leases and Biden's support of Israel. For Elias, the deciding moment came when Biden cast doubt on the Gaza Health Ministry's reported death tolls. Quote, I found that to be truly monstrous, he says. It's something I cannot co-sign with my name and my vote. Lillian, a college student in New New York is undecided about voting this year. She's been disappointed by the Democrats on so many issues, including Biden's promise to forgive $10,000 of student loans, which was ultimately struck down by the Supreme Court. The party's neglecting to further efforts to codify abortion and the president's support of Israel. London 24 doesn't want to hear a guilt trip for not planning to vote in the 2024 presidential election. It won't work, she says, and stop telling her that Biden is the lesser of two evils because she's tired of that argument. Every four years, we're told told to choose the lesser of two evils and things will get better, she says, and it just doesn't get better. Leah voted for Biden in 2020, but is considering withholding her vote in 2024 because of what she sees as the disappointing outcomes of his presidency. She doesn't agree with Biden about funding Israel's war on Hamas, and she's saddled by student loans the president said he would forgive. Quote, it felt like kind of a con, she says, about then-candidate Biden's proposal to forgive $10,000 of student loan debt per borrower. I don't want to vote for Biden. I I want a better option. Now, for the record, I hope that young people don't stay home. I hope they actually do exercise their right to vote because I think that voting is important. And I don't agree that there's no difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I do think that there are discernible and important differences between Democrats and Republicans. And really, my thoughts on voting in general was perfectly articulated in this video by Olaimi. I'll link to that down below. But you don't have to agree with their reasoning. But you can't pretend as if their votes don't matter. They do matter. And vote shaming them isn't going to be an effective strategy. Otherwise, it would have worked in 2016. Many young people said they were going to stay home then, and many did. But their votes matter, and they must be won over. And if they're not going to be won over, then different young people must be mobilized, right? Young people were already disappointed with Biden after the Supreme Court struck down his student debt cancellation plan. He said that he would pursue cancellation through the Higher Education Act. But as far as we know, that's just in limbo. He's kind of nibbling around the edges with small amounts of can cancellation here and there for anyone who qualifies. But the overwhelming majority of us still have student debt and even his SAVE Act, which is good in theory, hasn't benefited a lot of us till this point because applications that we've submitted have been stuck in limbo for months. So there's really been no real relief for student debt holders. And on top of that, he chose to restart student loan repayments, which was bound to piss off young people. So you've got that. You've got all these reasons why young people were, I think, reasonably and rightfully disillusioned with Biden. But then you add a genocide to the list as well. And you begin to see why young people feel so frustrated with the Biden administration, why so many of them are just saying, I'm out. I'm not going to vote. What's the point? It doesn't feel like my life is changing meaningfully, so I'm just going to choose to stay home. 
Now, again, I don't agree. I think that who's in the White House does matter. But you can't just write these concerns off and hope things get better and cross your fingers because that's not a gamble that I'm willing to make, especially when democracy really is on the line. But I mean, it's not just young people. Biden has lost support of Arab Americans in key swing states and his attempt to repair that relationship hasn't been going well, to put it mildly. Abed Ayub of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee tweeted this, quote, Biden is scheduled to travel to Michigan at the end of the month to meet with Arab American voters. There is a problem. Many are rejecting the invite to meet while others have rebuffed outreach efforts. The meetings are in jeopardy and currently looking like they won't happen in Dearborn, which was the Biden team's first and preferred choice. Don't be surprised if this trip is, quote, postponed due to scheduling. Reality is starting to set in for many that our community won't forget about the genocide. Yeah. Now, I get that it's still early and things can change, including feelings. And I'm guessing that a lot is going to change between now and November. But the question is, will enough things change? And that's debatable. There's going to be a lot of people, especially Arab Americans, who's not going to change their mind because this is personal to them. They have relatives that died in Gaza, right? And Joe Biden has tuned them out, not listened to their concerns up until this point. And I'm glad that he's at least aware that now he needs to make an effort to reach out to the Arab American community because he needs their support to win states like Michigan. But he kind of waited a little long, right? He's still allowing the genocide to go on, so it might be a little too late. But at least he knows that there needs to be an effort made. When it comes to young people, the administration seemingly doesn't even have a strategy in place to address their concerns. And I say this because in an interview with Joy Reid on MSNBC, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who is an advisor to Biden's 2024 campaign, he really did not have a strong answer when he was asked about Biden's weakness with young voters. So let's listen to what he has to say. And then there's a follow up that's even worse. But first, here he is. I think that there is some significant anecdotal evidence that President Biden does have some issues in terms of um, parts of the younger electorate that are not in a good place with him on things like Gaza, on the you know bombing of Yemen. There were just protests outside of the White House this past week. There is some energy that's building, particularly among Arab American voters, Muslim American voters who say they will not vote for him um, because of his stance on Gaza. Is that is it bedwetting or is the White House maybe not paying enough attention to real passionate objections to its policies by younger voters that they need to turn out? And I mean younger voters, including younger African-American voters. Well, when you're a responsible leader, when you're in office, you have to make tough decisions, no doubt about it. And every time you have to make a tough decision, someone doesn't like it. Uh, the truth is that uh, we've seen Joe Biden uh, underestimated all along uh, in his entire career and especially in 2020. Uh, in 2024, I think what we're going to see is a real focus on the things that really matter to people's individual lives, to their families, to their communities. And that's, you know, the economy. It means their freedoms. We talked about choice. Uh, I, in a lot of places in the country, people are deeply concerned about gun violence. And uh, we know that Joe Biden has stood up for a uh, ban on assault weapons, and and he has stood up for uh, violence prevention programs in a way that Republicans just want to let go and, frankly, let people shoot each other wherever they may be with as many guns as they may want to have. So, 
I do think that a focus on the issues that really matter to working families across the United States is going to matter for Joe Biden in a positive way. Now, there are always detractors, right? There are people that even that vote for Donald Trump who don't like things about Donald Trump. But in the end, when people are going to see the two visions for the future of America, that young people and people of color across the United States, not to mention the vast majority of American workers, know that it's Joe Biden that's fighting for them and Joe Biden that'll do better for them. Donald Trump will be a disaster for those groups. Incredibly naive. Again, the young people Joe Biden needs aren't voting for Donald Trump. They don't support Trump. The risk is them just not voting altogether and tepidly signaling support for gun safety laws and abortion rights is not going to sufficiently mobilize young people. Biden needs a concrete action plan that he talks about nonstop to mobilize these voters. And even if he has that, it still might not work because they can't put aside the fact that he's supporting a genocide. But Joy Reid, to her credit, who's been excellent lately, she asked a follow-up question since, you know, she seemingly wasn't convinced, and it gets so much worse. And you don't think that the White House needs to adjust or that the Biden re-election campaign needs to adjust in any way its messaging on issues of war and peace? Because these are issues, I mean, we are on MLK Day, and we do know that one of the things that Dr. King did later in his life was to oppose the Vietnam War. And this was an important issue to him, as important in the end of his life as fighting for living wages and for racial justice. You know, issues of war and peace are passion issues. They're voting issues. And for a lot of younger Americans, not even just younger Americans, but a lot of progressives and a lot of just people of a humanist view of the world, the Gaza issue is a voting issue. So you're saying that people will ignore that? You don't think that the White House needs to in any way adjust its messaging on that? Well, look, Here's what the White House has been doing. They're fighting, you know, what has become a mortal enemy of the United States, and that's Vladimir Putin. Uh, they're they're standing up for democracy in Ukraine. Uh, they're fighting against terrorism in the Middle East. Those are the things that I think the messages that the Biden administration needs to make sure they're getting out to people. But look, nobody likes war. I mean, I, the, we'd like to have all of this ratcheted down and go away. And I know the president wants that, right? But it, you have to have a careful uh, foreign policy expert in the White House who understands how to manage all that in a very difficult environment. You think Donald Trump has shown that he can do that? Do you think Donald Trump would handle this better than Joe Biden? The answer clearly is no. Uh, we're doomed. We are doomed. <laughs> she asks him about Gaza and he pivots to Putin and ends with, well, at least Biden's not as bad as Trump. I promise you that is not going to resonate with young people who want him to stop doing a genocide, but they don't, they don't get it. But what that answer does tell me is that the Biden administration doesn't actually have a plan to meaningfully address young voters' concerns. So the question is, how exactly does Joe Biden plan to win back the White House without young voters? I mean, there's two responses to this. First, he either assumes that they'll acquiesce in November, and that's a possibility. But I mean, it's a big if. And it was a gamble that Hillary Clinton also made in 2016 that didn't pay off. So I don't know that I'd want to make that gamble if I were Joe Biden with how much is at stake. But second, he maybe thinks that he doesn't need young voters. He can just use negative partisanship against Trump again 
to win over voters, in particular, voters that Trump is losing, moderate voters, independents. And um, that seems to be his game plan, right? So after Trump won the Iowa caucus in a landslide, here's what Joe Biden tweeted. Looks like Donald Trump just won Iowa. He's the clear front runner on the other side at this point. But here's the thing. This election was always going to be you and me versus extreme MAGA Republicans. It was true yesterday and it'll be true tomorrow. So if you'll notice, he's making a really interesting distinction here. It's us versus extreme MAGA Republicans, meaning not all Republicans are bad, just the most sycophantic Trump supporters. Now, I think that this is uh, naive to an extent because the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump. So to pretend as if there's this massive swath of Republicans who are just like itching to vote against Trump, I think they're probably going to suck it up and, uh, and vote for Trump. So the intent behind this, though, is to signal to moderate Republicans that they are welcome in Joe Biden's coalition. And this is what Joe Scarborough hinted at as well. We're running, he says, against extreme MAGA Republicans. Mika, it's not an us versus them. Joe Biden's not saying all Republicans are bad guys. All Republicans hate the rule of law. All Republicans still are, 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 are going to, to, to Chinese uh, religious cult websites to get their information. No, he's talking about extreme yeah. MAGA Republicans. It makes a difference because there are a lot of Republicans out there mm -hmm. that, again, this is about conversion. There are a lot of independents out there that Joe Biden's going to get voting for. It. I think that Joe Scarborough is correct to assume that converting moderates and independents is Joe Biden's strategy here. And in some ways, it could pay off, right? I think that his position on abortion is going to help him with independents, for example, and maybe some moderate Republicans, although not much. But with that being said, it's wishful thinking to believe that you're going to make up enough ground with moderates and independents to account for the hemorrhaging of young support. I'm not saying that you forego the strategy of courting moderates altogether, but it's not a binary choice, and it's not something that should be your main strategy. It should be supplemental to your existing strategy of mobilizing young people and your core base, people of color. You still need young voters to win, even if you win a lot of moderates and independents. That really doesn't change the reality of electoral politics regardless. So Biden has to make a direct appeal to young voters, and it just seems like there's no message there. There's no attempt there aside from Trump bad, which is obvious. And you might not want to listen to an extremist radical lefty like me, but take it from Obama alum who also feel like Biden's campaign strategy up until this point has been inadequate. This Politico article talks about a real divide between the Biden and Obama camps, and the Obama camp is sounding the alarm about Biden's re-election campaign because they think that it's too bare bones and Biden needs to announce key staffers in swing states immediately so we can make up, you know, the ground that he's lost. So everyone can see that Biden is in danger. Biden knows that Biden is in danger based on reports that we're seeing. The question is, why isn't he taking action to address these deficiencies? Why aren't we seeing him course correct right now? Is he honestly waiting until June to make these changes? I mean, when things are this bad, you need to start right now. And yes, things can change, and I hope that they do. But in order for things to change, the time to actually take action to make it change is right now. You have to stop the genocide. You have to stop it. Not just because of electoral reasons, but because genocide is bad. 
On top of that, you have to promote specific policies that appeal to core demographics of the Democratic Party, young people, Arab Americans, black voters. And you have to take the threat of Trump seriously, not just say Trump is a threat to democracy, but act like it. Biden has been campaigning on Trump's threat to democracy, and he's right to do that. But simply pointing out Trump's dictatorial ambitions isn't going to be enough. You need to give people a reason to vote for you. And Biden isn't doing that. But if he truly believes American democracy is at stake, he will start acting like it and get his shit together immediately. In my opinion, humbly, with all due respect, what's going on in Gaza is the equivalent of BLM in the States. What do I mean? So black on black crime. Every single weekend in Baltimore, in D.C., in Chicago, you name the city, there's black-on-black crime. Let one cop kill a black guy, George Floyd, national, international news. In the Middle East, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, you name it, Iraq, every day, Muslims are killing other Muslims. A lot of it is Islamists, fundamentalists. There's There's no marches. There's no protests. But Israel defends itself after October 7th, and I've seen you condemn Hamas for October 7th, but you've also sympathized with the Palestinians, as you should. But all of a sudden, that's the biggest story in the news. Why the distinguishment? Brace yourself, friends, because we're about to experience a lot more conservative brain rot. So you just listen to conservative PBD podcast co-host Adam use the black on black crime trope against Palestinians in an effort to downplay the ongoing genocide taking place against the people of Gaza. Now, I could explain the difference between violence among peers and state-sanctioned violence against people, but I don't have to do that because Bassem Yusuf handles this question perfectly and even calls out the racism embedded in that question. Why can't Muslims There's a say- difference between comparing conflicts, mm-hmm. civil war, and then allowing another country to bomb you from the sky every single day for 100 days. You cannot compare the both. And actually your tone of voice when you mm-hmm. say, Oh, there is like black and black, Arabs killing each other. In your undertone is saying, yeah, they don't deserve to live, so let's Israel kill Zero percent. This is exactly Zero what you're saying. No, no, this is no, what you're saying. No, that's not what I said. No, no, this is what I'm saying. I asked a question, there, yes, you're sir, reading you are, into you my you have, you have absolutely no sympathy for the Palestinian killing. Because that's not true. Don't, don't put words in my mouth. No, 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 seriously. I 100% the, 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 have sympathy. The, the, your, your, your entrance into this uh, yeah. conversation is extremely racist because you say, Dude, well, Arabs have been killing each other. First of all, the Arabs have been killing each other. These are called either proxy wars or civil wars. But you, this is different. Because A, the America is not standing behind Saudi Arabia voting every single uh, UN resolution, like, like Israel. Israel is killing Palestinians, and nobody can do anything for them in the UN or the Security Council. Right? You can talk about how Saudis are killing the Houthis or the Yemenis or how Iran. Mm-hmm. But when they go to the Security Council, America doesn't use the vote, the veto. You know how many vetoes did America use since the inception of the Security Council? How many? Tell me. 88. How many of those were they used in order to protect Israel from a veto? Zero. 56. Oh. The superpower of the world over 50 years used more than 65% of its veto power to protect one, one country. You cannot compare both. Perfectly said. We are talking about power dynamics here and a power imbalance in particular and imperialism. And I don't know if you caught it, but they revealed how ignorant they were to this fact. And I want to play it again just in case you missed it. 
How many of those were they used in order to protect Israel from a veto? Zero. 56. Oh. Isn't that amazing? Yes, America exercised its veto power on the Security Council zero times to protect Israel. What? Imagine thinking that. Imagine being so uninformed that you've never heard that the U.S. has been running cover for Israel for decades. It's just, it's baffling to me. They're so uninformed, and as a result, they're basing their arguments purely on emotions, whereas Bassem Yusuf is speaking about facts. So you begin to understand why the host, Adam, here used the argument that he used. Because he doesn't have facts, so he's trying to deflect. This tactic is used in debates to just change the conversation. And I see why he wants to talk about this on his own terms, because he knows nothing about the Palestinian struggle. But in order to understand why he specifically invoked that argument against Palestinians, the black-on-black crime trope argument, we first need to understand why conservatives played the whataboutism game in the first place whenever institutional violence against black Americans comes up. So in an op-ed for Teen Vogue published during the 2020 George Floyd protests, Mila Nasheed addresses the dangerous black-on-black crime myth by pointing out some basic facts. First and foremost, black Americans are three times as likely to be killed by police compared to white Americans. Second, black-on-black crime rates are comparable to white-on-white crime rates. Third, there is a direct link between racism and poverty that's enforced institutionally to stifle growth of black people. So what does this all mean? Well, if you are statistically more likely to be impoverished because you're black, well, obviously you're going to live in a more poor neighborhood. Poor neighborhoods are usually over-policed or at a minimum policed more than affluent white neighborhoods on average. And if there is just more civilian encounters with police in black neighborhoods because they're over-policed, despite comparable levels of crime, by the way, that is just going to lead to more arrests in black neighborhoods because it's basic math, which also explains the higher rate of police killings against black Americans compared to whites. Now, when you put aside statistical realities and factor in just human psychology, well, police are conditioned to racially profile black Americans more than whites because they are literally trained to look for crime exclusively in poor neighborhoods where black people and people of color disproportionately live. All of these things are interconnected, and when black Americans try to educate white Americans about these institutional biases that lead to state-sanctioned violence, well, they're hit with a what about black-on-black crime. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's an entirely different conversation. But here's why they use that non-sequitur. Nasheed continues, When a white person commits a crime against another white person, it's just called a crime. Race isn't a factor. And that's intentional. Using language like black-on-black crime perpetuates the myth that intra-racial violence is specific to the black community. A myth that implies black people are inherently more violent. This tactic has been used to justify the mistreatment of black people since the abolishment of slavery. White supremacists will justify colonization, slavery, and the Confederacy, all while saying black people are an inherently more violent race. Think about that. Crime within black communities is comparable to crime within white communities. But white people aren't being killed by police at the alarming rate that black people are. Still, people like former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani felt justified in saying after the killing of 18-year-old Mike Brown, quote, the white police officers wouldn't be there if you black people weren't killing each other. This type of language is an attempt to justify the killings of Brown, Taylor, Floyd, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, and the ever-growing list of black victims of police brutality. 
It takes the blame from the officers involved and places it on the victims simply for being black. We're not asking for special treatment. We're asking for equal treatment. To call the fallacy of black-on-black crime anything other than anti-black racism is an injustice in itself. In other words, this whole black-on-black crime narrative is being used to straight up just flip reality on its head. And the goal here is to justify violence by the oppressor against the oppressed, all in an effort to victim blame and make it seem like the people who are actually perpetrating the violence have no choice. It's a matter of self-defense. That's literally what they're priming you to believe. So since these people who they've deemed violent are the ones who started the violence, violence against them is therefore justified. So if we take what we've learned about the black-on-black crime myth and apply that to the situation in Palestine, you begin to get a sense as to why Adam invoked the black-on-black crime trope. He wants you to turn off your brain and assume that Israel is justified in killing violent Palestinians in the same way that cops are justified in killing violent unarmed black Americans. It is explicitly racist and a twisted way of thinking that doesn't take into account the history of colonialism and imperialist violence against Palestinians. Now, Another way that Adam tries to victim blame Palestinians here is by reducing the situation down to a matter of economics. But you're going to see Bassam Yusuf try to explain why that's not that simple, right? It's it's not as simple as saying, well, why don't they just like pick themselves up by their bootstraps and do better? Now, as Bassam Yusuf is trying to explain this, he gets interrupted and you'll see why. The bottom line is this, what I've seen in the Middle East, it comes down to socioeconomics. Then you sprinkle in a little Islamism in there. Why is every rich country in the Middle East have no problems, but all the poor countries are suicide bombings, terrorists. Gaza had the opportunity to invest billions of dollars into infrastructure, in what? into infrastructure, How? but they built tunnels and bombs. But my question is, no, no, I, I basically, here's no, my, here, you're here, wrong, you're wrong. Gaza has not built tunnels and you're bombs. You're wrong. You're wrong. You said like, as if you, as if there was like some sort of a, a prosperous source of economy and all of us, I said, took that and put it on in tunnels. What you're missing here is Gaza since 2006 is under blockade. And even the medicine, even the water, even the electricity is controlled by Israel. They don't have- I'm open... not asking you about Gaza. I'm asking you about no, the I'm, Middle I'm, East I'm, to I'm, be I'm, clear. I'm, no, you I'm, want to focus on Gaza and then you want to you, turn you, it back you, on Israel. I'm asking you specifically- I'm sorry. Let's not why... talk about Israel if that would make you no, a little I'm, bit I'm, nervous. This, that, Do you we can talk, talk about, about Israel for the next two hours. Do you want to talk about other countries in the, in the Arab world so we can prove that Arabs could be bombed at any time because we're fucking poor? No, I, that's not what I'm saying. You're, what that's I'm, exactly what you're saying. No, so they're just like poor people killing each other and we're just like there watching them. No. I'm, I'm sorry that, dude, I like you, but seriously, your undertone is fucking racist. From the beginning until the end, you are looking at those people as lesser people who have made bad choices and because they are poor, they are okay to be fucking bombed by Israel. Okay, this your, is the third your, time uh, you've used the racist word. I've never said that once under, about you. Your undertone is very, very, very offensive. For so people. when I read stats, yeah, yeah, you, you don't like my yeah, tone when when I read you, stats. Write your, you read the stats basically telling people, like, you see, because they're rich, they got this the, the, to themselves. The, the rich people are better. The poor people are okay. So we can have to kill them no, every now and that's then. That's not what I said. And you're putting words in my mouth and it's actually super disrespectful. I'm reading stats to you. I'm saying, how can we uplift the poor countries in the Middle East? How can Remove we turn... Remove That's number one. No, 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 no. I Remove said the, the Middle East, funny guy. Remove the blue I said the Middle said... East. You're talking about Gaza.
So you see the problem. The conservative here, Adam, is trying to pinpoint certain economic indicators to address them in a vacuum. But that's not how the world works. Statistics without context are meaningless. It goes back to the black-on-black crime trope, right? And Bassam is trying to contextualize the situation here. Gazans have no self-determination. They can't choose to invest in their economy. 80% of Gazans relied on foreign aid before the siege. They have no control over their own water supply and electricity, no freedom of movement. They are in an open-air prison. What do you expect out of them? How can you possibly victim blame here? But as you saw, Bassam was cut off when he tried to educate Adam, and I suspect that the reason why is that, you know, he didn't like that Bassam was kind of undermining his point here, and on top of that, you know, he probably also didn't like that his racism was being called out. But Bassam did what he needed to do. He shut down this notion that Palestinians are somehow responsible for their own subjugation. That is madness. But Bassam entertains Adam's argument here for a moment and talks about other Middle Eastern countries. And uh, let's see how that goes too. I'm naming all these countries that are thriving. Qatar, Bahrain, UAE, mm. Israel, Silicon Valley of the Middle East. Mm. What can be done with the countries that are quote unquote shitholes? Okay, give me a country like a shithole. Give me an example. I'm looking at the unemployment rates in all like, these give countries. Me one, give me one country. Afghanistan. Okay. Syria. Afghanistan. Lebanon. Why, why Afghanistan got a, became a shithole country? Because they endorsed the Taliban. They, they did. The, they did. Yeah. Isn't that a little bit of a reductive way to tell history? Because at the beginning, there was no uh, uh, Taliban. And then the Soviet Union came in. And then America came in, supported the Taliban, make them bigger than they were. And then at the end of the day, they support. if you remember Rambo 3, Rambo mm-hmm. 3 was supporting the Taliban. So Taliban was really cool. And even they were... They were even hailed by right-wing Christians as freedom fighters, anti-communists. And then what happened? America, some people like the Richard Wilson wall wanted in to come in to put some schools. That no, no, no. We spend, we spend all of this money of tanks on, on weapons. We don't need to put them schools. What happened? Taliban's flourished all because of America interfered, made it shitty, left everything. Taliban flourished and then America went in again, spent $2 billion, making it even two terror laws, made it even worse. So when you tell me like a country is not surviving, it's not because, oh, because they're bad people. They don't know. You have to come into the root cause. Every single country that you said, I can bring you the root cause of how America and the West has fucked this country to become. Go to Syria. Mic drop. Devastating arguments here by Bassem that Adam just can't counter because... Facts matter. Now, if you keep watching, Bassam explains that the countries that Adam deems as shitholes have become battlegrounds for proxy wars between larger powers. These are details that literally matter. You can't disaggregate specific statistics from the overall situation. The context matters here. And it is the height of Western chauvinism to blame these countries for the predicaments that they're in while not acknowledging the ways that our government destabilized these countries. Geopolitics matters. Imperialism matters. The context matters. And that's what Bassem is providing Adam with here. And it's not just the Middle East that the United States has destabilized. U.S. imperialism has destabilized so many Latin American countries. So many. And after destroying these countries, ironically, Americans then have the audacity to turn around and complain about immigration crises that our country created in the first place and then fearmonger about the potential for terrorism on the border. Excuse me? Our government is the terrorist, motherfucker. I am begging Americans to have just a tiny bit of self-awareness for once. Most of us can't actually comprehend the fact that most of the world views us as the bad guys. And that's what you kind of see here with Adam, right? It's cognitive dissonance. But as frustrated as I felt watching this, since Adam was obviously arguing in bad faith, 
I did feel a lot better after looking at the comment section because it seems like Basim Yusuf was actually getting through to the PBD viewers. Here's some of the most popular comments that I saw. Quote, Adam called Basim intellectually lazy after he gave him a whole history lesson about his own people. Exactly. Adam never disappoints me in being the dumbest person on the panel. So this is clearly a regular viewer who uh, is conservative, I'm assuming, since they watch the show. And uh, yeah, they're won over by Basim. Basim with others made me look at this whole thing differently. Once you research how much influence of foreign power Israel has over the U.S. and U.K. politics, you will be stunned. Thank you, Basim, for another informed interview slash debate. Adam came across like an uninformed bully. Basim came across like an educated and also wise person who speaks logically. Adam has single-handedly put a stain on the reputation of the PBD podcast. This is another person who's very clearly a regular viewer. Because, like, to care about the reputation of this podcast in the first place, you know, it is it it suggests that you're a fan. Adam is the definition of you don't need to be smart to be successful. This one is just brutal. Uh, did Adam come straight from APAC camps? How was he indoctrinated so badly? I don't think it was possible for Adam to look more like an establishment fool than he already did. Yet here we are. I'm embarrassed for Adam. Well done, Pat, for letting this one play out and letting Adam expose himself yet again. And trust me when I say this, there is so much more where that came from you would be hard-pressed to find a single comment in support of adam and i never thought that i would say this but reading the comments under a youtube video from a conservative channel actually gave me hope what's happening here i mean the comment section just they were with Basim Yusuf. And I'm sure that many people like myself showed up just to see Basim. Still, you can't deny how powerful Basim was throughout this conversation. And uh, he changed minds. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that he changed minds of people in the PBD audience, which is important. Now, there's so much more that I would like to address from this podcast. For example, there was a weird moment where Patrick Bet David chose to take a phone call from Chris Cuomo on air and disrupted the entire conversation. Like, why would you do something like this? It's incredibly unprofessional. But since it's Chris Cuomo, it's like, hey, I know Chris Cuomo. Let me answer the phone for him. It's just it was really weird. So I had to point that out. He also tried to portray Trump as a dove on foreign policy, which is just delusional to me. But I mean, if we keep going, we're going to be here all day. What we talked about here in this video, in my opinion, is the most important because the way that Bassem discusses Israel, Palestine is how you want to discuss it as well because this is the blueprint that you need to actually change hearts and minds and shift the dialogue here which matters the most in my opinion currently when it comes to these types of debates so i'll link you to the full thing just in case you want to watch it but if you're going to watch something from Basim Yusuf, i would actually recommend the full-length interview uh, interview that he did with pierce morgan i think that one was much better because he's able to articulate himself better at length without getting interrupted. But overall, just getting back to Basim Yusuf in this interview, he is an amazing communicator and he is proving in real time that facts still matter and educating and informing people can still win them over. And that, in my opinion, is cause for optimism in my book because I thought that people couldn't be won over with facts and it was all just opinions formed based on emotions. But Bassam is disproving that in real time, and I think that's uh, that's cause for celebration in my book. I get that the bar is low, but I'm optimistic because of it. 
So I'm actually not sure how many of my viewers are old enough to really remember the impact that Bill O'Reilly had on American political discourse. But if you're not familiar with him, this is a former Fox News host who was forced to resign back in 2017 following an advertiser boycott of Fox News that materialized in response to allegations of sexual harassment against him. Now, we could go down memory lane and talk about his idiotic conspiracy theories, his global warming denialism, his attack on rap music, or how his stochastic terrorism towards an abortion doctor actually led to that doctor's assassination, but he's no longer relevant enough to really warrant a deep dive. But if you don't know about him, the TLDR is that basically he's a conservative commentator. He was one of the most popular ones and influential ones, similar to Rush Limbaugh, and he's a bad person. But the reason why we're talking about this irrelevant person today is because of a very funny reason. Leopards ate his face after he voted for the leopards eating people's faces party and never expected the leopards to eat his face. So let me explain. Florida, as you all know, is a state with a law known as Don't Say Gay, which facilitates the banning of books deemed inappropriate by parents. Now, the goal of the law, obviously, is to target LGBTQ plus material, but the text of the law couldn't specifically say that that's what it was doing, since that would be obviously unconstitutional. So basically, the law allows parents to challenge virtually anything that they view as inappropriate in classrooms. Sometimes that includes books that conservatives wouldn't expect, like the Bible. In fact, one parent challenged the Bible in Utah under their book ban law, and it was temporarily banned as a result. But when it comes to Florida's book ban law, well, guess what? Bill O'Reilly's books were the targets, and uh, they've been removed from school libraries in at least one district. Newsweek reports, on Thursday, the Florida Freedom to Read Project obtained a list of over 1,000 book titles that were temporarily removed from the Escambia County School District pending an investigation. Two of the books on the list were written by O'Reilly, the conservative pundit titled Killing Jesus, A History, and Killing Reagan, The Violent Assault That Changed a Presidency. In a statement to the Pensacola News Journal, a spokesperson person for Escambia Schools said that the books have not been permanently banned, but instead are under review to ensure compliance with the new legislation, which was previously signed by GOP presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The legislation seeks to limit books and other materials alleged to contain pornography or obscene depictions of sexual content in the state's schools. Now, Bill O'Reilly's books might not necessarily be sexual in nature, but, I mean, we don't know why they were challenged in the first place. It could contain violence. That could be one of the reasons why they're pulled. Uh, there could be depictions of sex in these books. I don't necessarily know. I know that the target audience obviously is not children. These are books for conservative adults, so it's hard to say what's in it. I know that his Killing Reagan book uh, does talk about the assassination attempt, if I'm correct. So, you know, that could be deemed inappropriate if his book Killing Jesus is actually about Jesus being crucified, then let's just say that the Passion of the Christ was rated R for a reason. So, I mean, if parents are allowed to challenge inappropriate books, it's not inconceivable that Bill O'Reilly's books could also be targeted as inappropriate by some parents. But in response to this, Bill O'Reilly is fucking pissed. 
He tweeted out, a Florida county removes my books, killing Jesus and killing Reagan from school libraries. Preposterous. We are investigating and are seeking comment from Governor Ron DeSantis. This will not stand. And he added, things are getting crazy with book banning in Florida. Two killing books under fire. Now, here's what he said to Newsweek. They continue, quote, it's absurd, O'Reilly told Newsweek on Friday. O'Reilly also said that he and his team also plan to investigate this, adding, that he will find out exactly who made the decisions to temporarily take them out of the library in this county. I'm going to put their pictures up on television and on my website, and I'm going to ask them for a detailed explanation of why they did that. So he is basically <laughs> frothing at the mouth, shitting his pants, asking to talk to the manager of Florida, demanding action at once. And it's just, it's so hilarious to me because he's having this overreaction after guess what he supported this law not just book bans in general he supported this specific law in florida the don't say gay law <laughs> isn't it so funny the way that the universe works sometimes this is amazing now the problem here with bill o'reilly and supporters of book bans in general is that they can never conceive of situations where the books that they like or the books that they've written would be deemed inappropriate by other parents. Now, he indirectly acknowledges the hypocrisy here by discussing his previous support for this Florida law that got his books banned. Here's what he says, quote, when DeSantis signed the book law, I supported the theme because there was abuse going on in Florida. There were far left progressive people trying to impose an agenda on children. There's no doubt about it. And the state has an obligation to protect children. But the wording of the law was far too nebulous in Tallahassee O'Reilly told Newsweek. So that law needs to be tightened up. DeSantis needs to come out publicly and say, this is insane. We're not going to cooperate with this and we're going to investigate the people who did it, O'Reilly said. Yeah, I'm sure that the governor of Florida, who's also running for president right now, is going to make this his top priority. The entitlement of these people is just, that's a different story for a different day, but I've got to point it out. But I mean, listen, I understand that he's hysterical right now, but He's not thinking logically. He's not understanding why DeSantis needed this law to be vague. He doesn't realize that if this law were too specific and too explicit about who they're targeting, that could be its undoing. These laws are usually purposefully vague for a reason. Bill O'Reilly should know this, but he's not thinking right now. I mean, if you explicitly say only LGBTQ plus books can be challenged, that obviously violates the Constitution. So you have to word it as vaguely as possible. That's why they did it. This is what LGBTQ plus activists warned about before this law went into effect. And guess what? These warnings were not heeded. And now all kinds of books are being banned in Florida, not just LGBTQ plus books, books about race. History books, books that are completely innocuous, books about immigration and the experiences of immigrants. I mean, it's just a really large net. Now, that might cast a bigger net by warding these book ban laws that way, but that's kind of how they skirt legal accountability because they are unconstitutional. Now, I would argue that these book bans are still unconstitutional, but if you're going to get it to pass when it comes to judicial scrutiny, you word it vaguely, and that's what he did. That's how he's trying to get it to stick. But I mean, these conservatives, they want to have it both ways. They want it to be very specific, but also they want it to be constitutional. But it's not. It's not It's not constitutional regardless. But if it's going to be constitutional, you can't just say, hey, guys, we're targeting gays 
and minority people. But if you know anything about Bill O'Reilly, he is a self-centered prick, and he can't conceive of the idea that what is and isn't appropriate is highly subjective. But since his temper tantrum was so public, people weighed in. They noticed his crying, and they had a lot to say in response, i.e., they mocked him ruthlessly. For example, Lance from the Surfs chimed in saying, and Jesus wept. Brian Tyler Cohen responded saying, leopards, faces, ETC. This person says, I never thought the censors would ban my book. Local man who supported taking books totally out of context to pull them from shelves, now angry that his book was taken out of context and pulled from shelves. Truly shocking, more at 10. These laws were supposed to target the people I don't agree with, not me. This is preposterous. <laughs> It's almost as if being in favor of banning books has backfired on you, Bill. Hmm. Oh, look who doesn't want to lay in the bed they helped make. The dog caught the car. Wait, I thought Bill O'Reilly died like five years ago. Unfortunately not. And that last one is probably my favorite, even though it got no love. But I mean, it was a banger. All of those were bangers. But I mean, uh, yeah. What else is there to say about this story? Bill O'Reilly refuses to lie in the bed that he helped make. But one last thing I do want to point out is I checked out his Twitter profile because I saw him whining. So I figured, hey, what's he up to? And I discovered that he has another book in his killing series titled Killing the Witches, which has not yet been banned to my knowledge. So I'm really worried that somebody's going to end up challenging that book as well, or worse, challenging his other books in school districts across the country that have these book ban laws. I think that would be absolutely terrible and definitely not funny if that happened. But I mean, who knows? You know, when you open the door to these types of book banning, you never know where it's going to go. So I'm crossing my fingers that his other books don't get banned as well. But I mean, on a serious note, eat shit, Bill. This week, Kentucky Republican Nick Wilson, this guy, sponsored House Bill 269, which would, wait for it, legalize incestuous relationships between first cousins. Yeah. Newsweek explains a Kentucky Republican has introduced the legislation that would amend the state's law so a person who had sex with their first cousin would no longer be criminally liable for incest. Kentucky law states that a person is guilty of incest if they engage in sexual relations with a person they know to be, quote, his or her parent, child, grandparent, grandchild, great-grandparent, great-grandchild, uncle, aunt, nephew, niece, brother, sister, first cousin, ancestor, or descendant. The amendment introduced by Wilson, if passed, would remove first cousin from this list. Now, Kentucky journalist Tessa Duval shared a screenshot of the text in question. And if you look at line 13 here, you can see, uh, yep, he just uh, crossed off first cousin from the list, which would uh, legalize sexual intercourse between first cousins in the state of Kentucky. Now, this absolutely blew up online with everyone laughing at him and rightfully so by the way but what made this even more viral is the fact that we're not just talking about any republican here nick wilson is actually the winner of the 37th season of survivor called david versus goliath and he then came back for another season season 41 titled survivor winners at war so it's not just the political community that was laughing at him. It's also the survivor community, which is actually pretty large, that was laughing at him as well. Everyone teamed up to dunk on Nick Wilson for presumably wanting to fuck his cousin. Although, who knows? He just wrote the bill, right? Now, other survivors even made TikTok reacting to his bill. Case in point. Oh my God, I've got some wild news. 
I'm Eliza Orleans, career public defender in Manhattan for the last 14 years, but also, as some of you may know, I was a contestant on Survivor Vanuatu and Survivor Micronesia fans versus favorites. This news relates to David vs. Goliath winner of Survivor, uh, Nick Wilson, who then leveraged the fame that he obtained from winning Survivor to run for Kentucky State Legislature and get elected. Nick Wilson is not only supporting but has introduced a bill that would reclassify incest in the state of Kentucky to not include your own first cousin. Kentucky, like so many other places, is facing a lot of issues, and this is Nick's top legislative priority. He is sponsoring this bill, and in fact, he has introduced this bill. Now, we're just seeing a small snapshot of the reaction uh, because it would take too long if I tried to give you the totality of the reaction to this because it's, it's about what you'd expect, right? So... Long story short, they're roasting the shit out of him, but he did respond to the backlash and he claims that it's not what it looks like. He's saying it was an accident. He didn't mean to accidentally legalize incest. <laughs> just <laughs> saying that sentence out loud, just like, <laughs> oh, goddamn. Anyways. On his official Facebook page, he writes, I filed HB 269 yesterday. The purpose of the bill is to add sexual contact to the incest statute. Currently, incest only applies in cases of intercourse. So sexual touching slash groping by uncles, stepdads, or anyone with a familial relationship is not included in incest. My bill makes that kind of sexual contact a class D felony unless the victim is under the age of 12. Then it increases the penalty to a class C felony. During the drafting process, there was an inadvertent change which struck first cousins from the list of relationships included under the incest statute, and I failed to add it back in. During today's session, I will withdraw HB 269 and refile a bill with the first cousin language intact. The fact that I was able to file a bill, catch the mistake, withdraw the bill, and refile within a 24-hour period shows that we have a good system. Whatever you say, this is a bill to combat a problem of familial and cyclical abuse that transcends generations of Kentuckians. I understand that I made a mistake, but I sincerely hope my mistake doesn't hurt the chances of the corrected version of the bill. It is a good bill, and I hope it will get a second chance. Now, that is a hell of a fuck up to make. But regardless, if you think it's an honest mistake or not... Nobody in his district seemingly believes him. There weren't more than 20 replies to this post, but not a single one of them thought that he was telling the truth. And this is just kind of a small snapshot of some of the responses. But I mean, they were dunking on him. You see memes about how his cousin might be reacting and a twist on the don't tread on me flag that says don't DNA test me. Now, somebody actually responded to a different post about a different topic, and they shared an image of Michael Sarah's character from Arrested Development which says Representative Nick Wilson on his way to make it legal to bang his cousins. Now, for those who've never seen the show, Michael Sarah's character has a crush on his cousin. So there's the context. Now, funny enough, he actually replied to this one saying, please see my recent post. I understand the stereotype and that I may be the butt of some jokes. I can take it, but please be mindful of the people I am trying to protect. Now, when it comes to Eliza Orleans, the fellow Survivor alum that made the TikTok, she also seemingly does not believe him because two hours after he made that post, she reposted the text of the law with first cousin conspicuously striked out and just said, okay. So nobody's really buying it. Now, if I were to just look at the part that Eliza had shared, I'd probably agree with her that he's 
probably lying. But if you zoom out and you look at lines four and five, we'll put both tweets on the screen so you can see what I mean. His explanation does check out, at least in part. He is expanding the definition of incest to include sexual contact, and that is important. It's a loophole that may allow sexual predators to escape accountability, so it is important that he's doing that, and he does have evidence that this is indeed what he wanted to do. And I'll admit that him striking first cousin in the first place is extremely bizarre. It's a weird mistake to make in the first place, and to not unstrike it is also very strange. But if he actually introduces an edited version, then the legislation would do what he says it would do. It would increase penalties for incestuous predators. And that's a good thing. So I do actually believe that this was an honest mistake, and I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, assuming the error is corrected and the bill is reintroduced by the time you see this video. We'll see what happens. But... Having said that, though, we absolutely should not let him off the hook entirely. And I say this because even if this little shitstorm that he stirred up inadvertently, seemingly if we're being extra charitable here, never happened, this is still a bad person. Nick Wilson is still a Republican who is predictably using his power in harmful ways. People Magazine reports on the evening of March 16th, this is 2023, both chambers of Kentucky's Republican majority legislature passed SB 150, a bill that begins with the words, an act relating to children. Initially, the bill allowed teachers to use pronouns aligned with their students' biological sex, even if the student didn't identify with them. But as the debate went on, the bill was expanded to include additional provisions. Among other things, the bill Bill includes a ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth. Doctors would be required to set a timeline to detransition children already taking puberty blockers or undergoing hormone therapy. The bill also prohibits schools from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity with students of any age and prohibits discussing human sexuality or sexually transmitted diseases before the sixth grade. The controversial bill easily passed the Senate by a vote of 30 to 7, but one of the freshman lawmakers in particular has received consent considerable national attention and backlash for supporting it. Representative Nick Wilson. Before he took office, Wilson was a reality star on America's longest running reality TV show. So Nick Wilson is no hero. He is a terrible person who supported a draconian crackdown on LGBTQ plus rights that literally forces teenagers to detransition, which puts them at greater risk of suicide. It's monstrous. Now, the harm that he did was actually explained to him by fellow Survivor castmates. For example, Christian Hubicki, who competed against Wilson, tweeted this, gender-affirming care is a lifesaver for transgender youth. So says the scientific evidence, as these major medical associations have recommended access to comprehensive gender-affirming care for transgender youth and issued policies and detailed guidelines for its use. He then links to the evidence in a follow-up tweet. Also, fellow Survivor winner Adam Klein, who competed against Wilson on Winners at War, subtweeted him saying, quote, I am heartbroken and angry at the way trans people and especially trans children are being discriminated against all over this country. We are going so, so backwards. If you take away gender-affirming care from a kid who needs it, you are on the so, so, so wrong side of history. On top of that, People Magazine continues. Ricard Foyer, who competed on Survivor 41 and is part of a long-term queer couple, tells People that he first met Wilson at a charity event and they immediately hit it off. Quote, I valued what I thought was an authentic relationship that we had built despite our differences, he says. But Foyer now sees the friendship differently. Quote, it is hard to feel so understood, so seen by a person while I shared the transitioning process, healthcare woes, and the lack of humanity we experienced just being queer and living in this world. 
foyer continues. And then after all of that, for that person to turn around and vote for essentially criminalizing being trans, I am not a lesser human for who I am, nor is my husband. However, Nick Wilson is a lesser human for not treating the people of this country and especially the amazing trans youth of Kentucky as human beings and using their rights and freedoms as means of gaining popularity in his political ventures. Also, two-time Survivor contestant Eliza Orlins, who also made the TikTok about him, if you'll remember, who ran for district attorney in Manhattan in 2020, also expressed her outrage at the bill and Wilson. Quote, Nick Wilson is a bigoted, cruel person who is using his Survivor platform to harm kids and families in Kentucky, she tells People. It's disgusting to see him not just vote for, but in fact, sponsor horrific transphobic legislation. It's hateful and discriminatory. As someone who ran for office myself, to watch Nick use his voice and his political position to actively hurt people is awful to witness exactly and seeing this context it makes more sense as to why eliza wasn't really willing to give him the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the incestuous kerfuffle now to make matters worse we now know that Nick is not ignorant because he became friends with Ricard, who was a member of the LGBTQ plus community. This is a gay man who is married to a trans man whose husband was literally pregnant while he was on Survivor. So to build up that friendship with somebody who's marginalized, who tells you about their community only to be thrown under the bus by your friend. I'm sorry, that just makes you a really shady person. And once again, Nick responded to the backlash and uh, he's a. Uh, He's insufferable. We'll just put it that way. He says, quote, I am shocked by the collective outrage and the number of people who believe this topic is black and white without room for debate. I didn't cast my vote out of hate, but out of compassion. Yeah, this is what literally every single bigot ever says. Oh, you know, we don't hate the uh, the sinner. We hate the sin. Fuck off. Listen, in conclusion, I think that he may have plausible deniability when it comes to wanting to fuck his cousin, right? We'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. But make no mistake about it. This is a cruel, heartless person who was denounced by his own friends because a harmful bill that he supported is now law in the state of Kentucky. And that is a damn shame. So maybe we shouldn't shame him and make fun of him for wanting to fuck his cousin. But he should absolutely be ridiculed for the harmful legislation that he supported that hurts trans youth. What, are, what do people say gives them like, oh, I can't vote for him because what are the things that they tell you? What, what answers can I help you provide? Wow. Well, the only one I have, and I don't even couldn't even remember who said that to me, but they mentioned that in skin, you know, and they think, well, yeah, yeah. so I kind of set them straight on that one. They believe yeah. the product is covered for it. I don't know, but yeah, um, and I thought it was fair enough, which we can do about that one. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, so yeah. You just watched an Iowa Republican voter explain to Vivek Ramaswamy's wife, Apoorva, that one of the biggest reasons one of her peers told her that they refused to support Vivek was because of his dark skin and suspicion that he may be a Muslim. Yeah. Now, this conversation took place recently, which means that Vivek's attempt to ingratiate himself with white supremacists in the Republican Party has failed. Predictably so. And at that same event, his wife faced even more questions about their religion. Let's watch. So you, you had a question about religion? Okay. Yeah. So we do not come from kind of the traditional 
background for most presidential candidates. We are Hindus. Yes, in a lot of ways, I think for a lot of people for whom religion is important, and we care a lot about God and our relationship to God. So I understand when people hear that we're Hindu, you want to know, like, what does that mean? Who are you? What do you stand for? So our religion teaches us that all of us have been put here by God for a purpose. And everyone has been given a gift, some gifts by God, and we have, it's our job to use those gifts to the best of our abilities while we are here on this earth. And so that is in a lot of ways why we are doing this. Honestly, bless her heart. The patience that she has is truly admirable. She's much more likable than Vivek, and I think she seems like a genuine person aside from the fact that she's married to a fascist like him. But I really do hate that they feel like they're forced to coddle white supremacists in the Republican Party to be barely viable. But I mean, they unfortunately kind of have to do that. They have to cater to the sensibilities of dumb fuck racists if they want to be members of this party. But one thing that they don't understand seemingly about these white evangelicals is that they're not looking for mere similarities between religious values, right? They want you to disavow your religion entirely and become Christian. Full stop. And even then, they still might not support you because you're not white. It's just the lost cause. But I mean, accepting Jesus as the son of God is step number one in their eyes. Now, Vivek himself has been asked about this specific question on the campaign trail numerous times. And here's how it went in one instance. So I'll be very honest. It's not a hard question at all. So in, in our faith tradition, Jesus Christ is a son of God. I know that is different than saying he's the son of God, but that is my view of Jesus Christ. He's got our family. Do we worship in churches? Yes, we do. Is that compatible with our faith? Yes, it is. One true God in many forms. So that's different, and I understand that. Yeah, it is different. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I think, I think that that is the path. That is a path to heaven is the way we look at it. But belief in God is what we say. Belief in the one true God. That's, that's the way I look at it. I mean, this is why I say it's a lost cause. The modern Republican Party is simply too racist and too deep in that Christian nationalism bubble to vote for someone like him. And to make matters worse, it's not just racism and Islamophobia that he's dealing with, even though he's not a Muslim. It's xenophobia as well, since GOP voters perceive him and his wife to be immigrants. Now, this was a concern that they expressed to his wife in Iowa. NBC News reports, at a later event in Jefferson County, Iowa, a Purva Ramaswamy was grilled by one of two event attendees about her own upbringing. Quote, how long have you been in the United States? Were you born here? Asked Wayne Neeskern, an attendee from Fairfield, Iowa. Quote, no, I came when I was four. Vivek was born and raised in Cincinnati, Apoorva Ramaswamy replied, explaining her family's Indian heritage. The attendee continued with questions about Apoorva Ramaswamy's parents, where they lived and whether they had green cards, they are citizens, before remarking that she doesn't have an accent. Quote, I've been here since I was four years old, Apoorva Ramaswamy replied. I've spoken English since I was four. Oh my God, this is so cringeworthy. In an interview after the event, Niskern explained that he loves foreign people. Oh, thank God, I was beginning to think otherwise, citing what he described as his two unofficially adopted children. He said he asked about Apoorva Ramaswamy's upbringing because of the bad things the Ramaswamy's say about the state of the country. He has not yet decided who he will support at his caucus, but he said it won't be Ramaswamy. Shocker, I know. So it's not just whether or not you're an immigrant. 
The question is also whether or not you are sufficiently loyal to America, especially as an immigrant, because maybe your loyalties lie with another country. I mean, I would say that this is just explicit racism and xenophobia. But again, he did say that he loves foreign people. So I guess we have nothing to worry about here. Whew. Thank goodness here. But I mean, this guy, he's not even a Trump supporter. But that doesn't matter. You would expect Trump supporters to be the most xenophobic, but all Republicans are xenophobic and racist. And I say this because most Republicans literally agree with the harshest anti-immigrant rhetoric imaginable. And yes, that includes literal Nazi rhetoric. And I say this because a poll conducted by CBS News and YouGov finds that a majority of all Republican voters agree with Trump's Hitlerian statement that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the nation. And as you can see from the second graphic here, 72% of registered Republican voters agree with the Nazi rhetoric if it's not attributed to anyone, but they like it even more or if Trump says it. So these are the kinds of people that Vivek Ramaswamy is trying to win over. The GOP's base consists almost exclusively of radicalized fascists who love Hitlerian rhetoric. So this is why his attempt to humanize himself has not worked. It doesn't matter if he's chummed it up with white supremacists that they like, like Steve King, or even parroted the Great Replacement conspiracy theory. If he's not white and not Christian, at the bare minimum, they fundamentally don't see him as one of them. And religious leaders have also been pretty open about their contempt for his religion and even claimed that his Hindu faith is evidence that Satan is trying to trick Christians. And I'm not making this up. Satan is the author of confusion. And we know that. And right now, the, the, the battle is coming for the presidential nomination. And there's a man who is gaining traction right now as the presidential nominee and his name is Vivek Ramaswamy and he is Hindu and those who are Hindu believe in many gods and he speaks well and he is very charismatic and he says the right things he says so many right things sometimes I'm like maybe he is the right guy but he's not, because our God will not be mocked. Do not be fooled. Do not be a victim of Satan's confusion right now. So literally just having a different religion in their eyes is tantamount to spiritual warfare where Satan is trying to trick them. And... <laughs> People question whether or not they mean Christianity when they talk about religious liberty. This is about Christian dominance, Christian nationalism. Now, the rhetoric that we're seeing here is just a microcosm of a bigger issue, and Vivek has had to do a lot to try to assuage their fears about his religion. NBC News continues, In the early days of his campaign, Vivek Ramaswamy faced so many questions about his Hindu faith that he eventually incorporated an explainer of Hinduism into his campaign stump speech. And yet, how big of an impact has that had? It's crazy that Republican voters are so racist and so evil that they have me almost feeling sad for Vivek Ramaswamy. I certainly feel bad for his wife, but I feel bad for him too, even though I shouldn't because he's a fascist. This is the party who he wants to be with because they also have a lot of fascistic beliefs, but they also have racist beliefs and they don't want to invite him to the white ethno state that they want to create. And it's just, it's sad to see somebody try 
to convince themselves just on a human level that they're human just like them, but they just, they don't want to see it. They turn their brains off because he's brown and not Christian. It, it's just, it's, it's sickening. This is the Republican Party. This is a significant portion of the American population. Even though Vivek Ramaswamy has horrifying fascistic beliefs himself, you know, they don't want nothing to do with him. Now, I respect the effort just on a human level that he's making at the micro scale to try to change the hearts and minds of white racists in the Republican Party. I think that that's important. The problem is that even if he's changed some minds about him at the micro level, on the macro level, he's not actually going to make that big of a dent in the GOP's racism overall. And that's because deconstructing these kinds of racist beliefs requires much more than just getting to know one non-white person. And at best, they're still going to be skeptical of non-whites, but just think that Vivek Ramaswamy is one of the good ones, but not because they see his humanity. In their eyes, he's only good because he's useful to their white supremacist cause because he's willing to reinforce their white supremacist beliefs by saying the great replacement conspiracy theory is real. But the problem, Vivek, is that they see you as trying to replace them. You are running for president. So like, if you are going to get them to not be racist, you've got to target the root cause. And unfortunately, he's not doing that. But again, it is important that he tried to make the case for his humanity on some level. At least his wife seems to be doing a really good job at that because I think that that does matter. But again, it's not going to make a big difference in the grand scheme of things, unfortunately, because this party is fundamentally racist and their whole ethos is just objecting to anyone who's not like them having civil liberties and civil rights. So Vivek Ramaswamy is having to come to terms with the fact that the Republican Party is just too racist to vote for him. Although we'll see because the Iowa caucus is tonight. So maybe they're going to prove me wrong, but I doubt that because Vivek has so much working against him. And on top of that, he was just thrown under the bus by Donald Trump as well, which is tantamount to the final nail in his campaign's coffin. On Truth Social, Trump tweeted, Vivek started his campaign as a great supporter, the best president in generations. Unfortunately, now all he does is disguise his support in the form of deceitful campaign tricks. Very sly, but a vote for Vivek is a vote for the other side. Don't get duped by this. Vote for Trump. Don't waste your vote. Vivek is not MAGA. The Biden indictment against his political opponent will never be allowed in this country. They are already beginning to fall. MAGA. Now, Vivek responded saying, yes, I saw President Trump's truth social post. It's an unfortunate move by his campaign advisors. Oh, please don't pretend like he's not just word vomiting on truth social and this is some calculated thing. Uh, I don't think friendly fire is helpful. Donald Trump was the greatest president of the 21st century, and I'm not going to criticize him in response to this late attack. He then talks about all of the Trump dick writing that he's done, and then he concludes saying, our movement must live on. America first didn't start in 2016. It started in 1776. We owe it to our founding fathers to do the right thing for our country. I want to save Trump and save this country. Let's do it together. You won't hear any friendly fire from me. Trump then responded to that by doubling down, saying, a vote for Vivek is a wasted vote. I like Vivek, but he played it too cute with us. Caucus tonight. Vote for Donald J. Trump. Build up the numbers. In November, we must take our very troubled nation, a nation in decline back from crooked Joe Biden and the radical left Democrats and thugs who are destroying it, MAGA. Yeah, so Vivek, despite his loyalty, is now 
persona non grata because daddy trump made it so and now the conservatives who did take vivek seriously and weren't actually against him because they're racist are now forced to denounce him in order to remain in maga's good graces for example maga influencers like laura loomer called out fellow conservative and closeted commentator benny johnson after he deleted a tweet that he made announcing that he'd be in iowa campaigning with vivek other chud influencers like brandon dilly also shamed johnson which led to him putting out a clarification statement reading hi guys want to clear something up we deleted a poorly worded tweet sent earlier we're in iowa filming a documentary for our in the arena show about the caucus we're not campaigning for or being a surrogate for any campaign we're not being paid by anyone i like trump i like vivek i love america and he even responded directly to Laura Loomer to make sure that she saw that he's still unconditionally loyal to trump i mean <laughs> <laughs> so fucking pathetic man but i mean this is uh what's necessary since vivek has been deemed unworthy by daddy donald trump which means that other conservative influencers are now going to have to think twice about speaking kindly about vivek if they don't want to piss off donald trump and of all people ron DeSantis somehow had the perfect response to this you know, i noticed that they um th th that he threw um um the, uh, the back, yeah, 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 yeah. He threw him under the bus. Um, you know, it's like I've never seen a candidate run for an office and basically campaign for another candidate in the same race before, and that's what's happened. But the minute he wasn't useful, you know, they 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 they, they dropped the hammer on it. So that's just kind of the way way they are. I mean, when Ron DeSantis thinks that you've gone too far and you've humiliated yourself, it's time to throw in the towel. But Vivek is not stopping anytime soon. And to make matters more embarrassing for him, he is trying to play it cool and pretend as if he wasn't just thrown under the bus by Donald Trump. Case in point. Why do you think uh, former President Trump threw you under the bus over the weekend? Well, I, I didn't get thrown anywhere, but I think there might have been an attempt to do that. I'd say that it's partly because of what it was, Elon, you were under the bus. Well, look, I'd say what and, Elon Musk and, and others are saying. The bus seeing. had snow tires on it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this is, is you know, I'll, I'll, I took it in a, in a lighthearted way. But the truth is people have to have their heads stuck in the snow not to see what's happening on the ground here. I know the mainstream media is ignoring it, but there has been a massive surge here late in the process. Mm -hmm. A number of endorsers who are widely expected to go to Donald Trump, legends in Iowa, like former Congressman Steve King, widely expected to go for Trump, came for me. A number of the strongest constitutionalist conservatives have switched from the other candidates in the last 72 hours to me. Steve Holt came from Ron DeSantis. Right. And so I think people who are actually on the ground are not blind to that reality. And right. I think the mainstream media, largely for better or worse, has been, which means I think we're going to see a shock tonight. Whatever you say, man. I mean, we'll find out soon. In fact, by the time most of you see this video, you'll already know the outcome of the Iowa caucus, assuming nothing shitty happens like it did in 2020. But I mean, let's just assume for a moment Vivek stunned the world and he won the Iowa caucus or performed much better than anyone expected. Does anyone actually think he's going to become the GOP nominee? And if he were to become the GOP's nominee, can you imagine how bad it would be for him in terms of racist backlash from Trump supporters specifically who'd inevitably accuse him of stealing the nomination from Trump. I mean, imagine the racist bullshit that his family would have to endure for years from his own party if he beats Donald Trump. He'd be a victim of his own success even if he won, which is the best case scenario for him. It's just, it's sad. So even though he is a bad person and a fascist, it is sad that this is what he has to deal with. But I mean, if you want to caucus with fascists, you can expect 
fascism. If you want to align yourself politically with white supremacists, you can expect white supremacy. It's kind of one of those situations where, you know, if, you, if you're going to play with a scorpion, don't be surprised if you get stung. If you're going to play with a snake, don't be surprised if you get bit. I mean, I get it. He loves late-stage capitalism and agrees, you know, economically and even to some of the core tenets of the GOP's white supremacist philosophy. He's also anti-immigration, but I mean, he's with the GOP, and this is what they believe. And it's just, it's it's gross, it's, it's disturbing, and it's sad. So, I mean, good luck, Vivek, because you're going to need it. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.